0: All right, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, you're going to need one to follow along in. So if you don't, just go ahead and put your hand up. Our ushers have Bibles that they're coming around with right now. um, And they will give you a Bible that you can follow along with. And uh, if you do not currently have a Bible of your own, keep the one that you're receiving. Keep it, take it with you, dig into it. Um, It is God's gift to us, and there's so much to find there. There is so much of that hope that we need that's found in God's Word, in the Bible So welcome back to our study of the book of John. Um, Last week we looked at the Bible's most famous verse, John 3.16. And I hope that our time last week was a reminder of just how significant those words that Jesus spoke are. Extremely significant verse. He spoke of his father. He bragged on his dad. And it was beautiful to watch what he had to say. He spoke about the basics of our salvation And the reality that that salvation was initiated by God the Father out of his love for us. We spoke about, in those words, we looked at at how Jesus spoke about the judge and how the reality of, of the judge, God, seeing our condition, responding in love, and in that love, giving us an advocate in his son, Jesus Christ. One who would stand in our place. One who would not just plead our case, but take our punishment on himself. So church, just another reminder to believe in God and put your trust fully in him. Just look at how much he loves you and how much he's done for you. This morning we continue on to what was next for Jesus. His conversation with Nicodemus was over and he moved on. So turn now to John chapter 3, verse 22. John 3:22 Jesus had come to Jerusalem for Passover and beyond that and now his first journey to Jerusalem in his ministry was over and he's moving on. So let's see what happened next for Jesus in John chapter 3 verses 22 to 36. This is what John writes about what happened next. After this, John writes, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right, so after this, after his time in Jerusalem, Jesus sets out into the countryside with his disciples. Jesus' disciples were baptizing people. It wasn't Jesus himself that was doing the baptizing. His disciples were baptizing, and John was also baptizing people. The location of this is not certain. There are a couple of different possibilities in that area around where specifically this was taking place. All we know is that Anon, which is mentioned in the verse, just means springs. So this may not have been a specific name for a place, but rather just mentioned springs, a place where there is plenty of water. The language used of this time that Jesus remained with his disciples indicates that this time period may have been several months long. When it says he remained with his disciples there, it could have been months long. So plenty happened between Jesus and his disciples out there in the countryside outside of Jerusalem. During that time, we get one more look at John the Baptist. His words are our focus for our study this morning, and they are profound. There are five aspects of this passage I want to look at with you this morning. First of all, we need to consider what happened to John the Baptist from here. His life following this interaction is mentioned by John the author. Secondly, we have to consider the significance of this moment and what it meant for John and for Jesus. Thirdly, there's a beautiful analogy about a groom and bride and best man here that is worth exploring. Fourthly, John the Baptist teaches us a thing thing or two about the identity and authority of Jesus and lastly, we have a lot to learn from John the Baptist's humility. And I want to close with that when we get to the end of our time. So, what happened to John the Baptist? In verse 24, John the author drops this statement about this, about this being before John the Baptist put in prison, he says. So, what happened? After Jesus made his appearance and he started his ministry years, John the Baptist continued baptizing. His mission continued to be to point people to God, and baptism was a sign of their repentance, so he kept doing it. John had many followers, and he was still a draw for people. People sought him out, and they came to listen to him. He taught, and he preached, and people became followers of God and repented of their sin, and baptism was their declaration of God's cleansing and his forgiveness for them. Our passage today talks about what happened between two events In Jesus' life, between Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Now, note this, only John the author wrote about this time period. Nobody else did. This period is not mentioned in the other gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Each of those other authors start with what happened to Jesus' ministry following the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Let me show you that. Matthew 4.12 says, Now when he, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. This is how Matthew starts his account of what Jesus did after his temptation in the wilderness. Mark 1, 14 now after John was arrested Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God that's where where Mark starts his account Luke 3 verse 19 and 20 says But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him by John the Baptist, for Herodias his brother 's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison, and then Luke goes on to write about jesus ministry and what he did following his temptation in the wilderness now we 've talked about john 's story before back at the beginning of the series. Herod didn't like John the Baptist. John had called him out on some stuff that Herod should not have done. So eventually Herod threw him in prison, and later John would be beheaded by Herod in a moment of weakness and stupidity. It was a terrible way for John the Baptist to die. But before that, there were some things that John was still involved in, and John the author gives us a look into that. No one else does in the Bible, but I'm so glad that John did. This is a very important passage. Why? Well, there's great significance to what's going on here. And we have to look at the big picture of God's history with his people in order to see it, but we'll see it. In our passage, there's an argument happening between some of John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew. It's about John's baptism versus Jesus' baptism. Verse 25 calls it a discussion. Digging into the definition of that, um, it would be at the very least a heated discussion. And so they come to John to ask about it all. They want his clarity on what's going on. On the surface, the two of them, John and Jesus, are both preaching and both baptizing. Both baptisms represent purification, something that the Jews knew a lot about from the Old Covenant. Purification was essential when standing before a holy God. Couldn't happen without purification. Can't happen now without Christ's purification. It was a significant part of their rituals. When we looked at the wedding in Cana, when Jesus turned the water into wine, he used water that was set aside for the purification rituals. We read that there. But this moment transcends purification rituals, it is much, much bigger. This time when John was baptizing and Jesus' disciples were baptizing, symbolized a transition point from the old covenant to the new covenant. And listen, um, this has been brought up a few times recently, the whole covenant thing. And this covenant talk, when we talk about covenants, this is not just religious study. This is not. Please don't ever take it that way. God made a covenant with you and with me. God did. The creator of the universe did. He made a covenant with his people, and you are his people. God committed himself to you forever. God promised to be and do specific things in his relationship with you, and he gave you guidance regarding your role in that relationship. All of that is in the covenant that he made with you. I'm not telling you anything new when I say that your relationship with God is eternal and it is by far the most important thing in your life. So rather than things like this passage just being a little religious lesson, we're faced with the reality that this was a significant moment in all of our lives. This was a big moment for God's people, for his family. So let's go back to the Christmas story again. Um, is, it, is it just me or is there some kind of trend going on this year where Christmas in July is bigger than ever? I mean, it's just happening. I, I went to buy something online um, and they were having uh, Black Friday in July and then it was going to be followed by a Christmas sale and it was a sporting goods store. So go figure that out. And, and I, I laugh because as I'm channel surfing right now, you go by Hallmark and what are they showing? Christmas movies over and over and over. I don't know what's going on this year, but we're going to just join right in and celebrate Christmas in July. The birth of John the Baptist plays a big role in the Christmas story. Why else would it be there? Jesus was born. God came to be with us. But John the Baptist was also born. Jesus' birth was a miracle, so was John's. And John's father, Zechariah, was a priest who knew about God's covenant. He knew a lot about the covenant. So let's take a few minutes to hear what Zechariah had to say about the birth of his son, John the Baptist. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. We're going to come back to John in a minute, but this is what Zechariah prophesied around the birth of his son, John the Baptist. Luke 1, verse 67 through 79. This is what happened. And his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. "...and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David." That promise was for me. It was for you. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We've been delivered. We've been saved. God's mercy has been poured out on us. God's light shines on us. We do not live in darkness any longer because of God's love for us demonstrated, as we talked about last week, in the sending of Jesus by God out of his love for this world. The new covenant was ushered in by Jesus, and we live in that covenant right now. John the Baptist was the last prophet that would speak of the coming of the new covenant. Then he would introduce that covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, this was kind of a big moment in history. Until that point, God's people had been following the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. It was God's law. It showed them God's holiness and what they were to be like as God's people. That covenant was their identity. This is how they were set apart from the rest of the world because they followed that covenant. But in so many ways, that covenant was impossible to keep. So why would God give them all these laws? The old covenant law was meant to show them their sin, their fallen state, which was true of all of them, and to show them God's holiness. Not in a mean way, not God saying, look at how terrible you are. It's not why he did this. Their failure to keep that covenant could have, should have, pointed them to God. And there they'd face, yes, his judgment, but also his mercy and his grace. It would drive them to him. And Jesus would then bring God's grace to his people in himself, in Jesus Christ. Jesus would usher in the new covenant this is taught throughout the New Testament, not just by John. In Galatians 3, 24, Paul wrote this. He said, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. God sees history and time differently than we do. He sees the whole timeline at once. And this was the way he carried out his saving plan by bringing the new covenant to us. The Old Covenant could not accomplish what the New Covenant is accomplishing. And I have to say, I am very grateful to have been born in the age of the New Covenant rather than the Old Covenant. People living under the Old Covenant weren't blind to it. God let them know that there was a New Covenant coming. Besides all the prophecies about Jesus, God told them about the New Covenant as well. Like what he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to this prophecy from Jeremiah 31. They were aware of that. Many of them waited anxiously for it, but others disregarded it and instead misused the covenant that God had made with them. For many, God's covenant had become just a superficial display of morality and spirituality and religion, just rituals and ceremonies and traditions. And they added on to it with their own ideas. Many thought that those rituals were in themselves the way to salvation. They weren't. Practicing the rituals led many to a place of arrogance, claiming a superior form of spirituality over others. They were better than others because they practiced the law better than others. It was a mess. And now here's John the Baptist telling the world of the coming Messiah. The last prophet lets them know that the time is near and he gives his life pointing the world To Jesus. Back to John chapter 3. In verse 29, John uses an analogy that is absolutely beautiful. He refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom. There's a lot behind this picture. Mostly it's John's understanding of who he is and what his mission, what his whole life has been about. Referring to Jesus as the bridegroom was not unique to this passage. It's not the first or last time we'll see it. Um, In the Jeremiah passage that we just read, God's referred to as Israel's husband. God's relationship with his people and Jesus' relationship to the church both included the marriage analogy. You'll see that in lots of places. But John refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom. And this puts us back into their culture at that time. We talked a bit about weddings when we looked at the wedding in Cana. They were these week-long celebrations, a big deal. The friend of the groom, called the Shoshbin, played an important role. And the closest thing that we have that compares to that role today is the role of best man. Not the same, but kind of the same idea. But even that, it just doesn't capture what John was saying. The friend of the groom had more than one role in the wedding. They were like the MC. They made sure that things were going well throughout the celebration. They had an important role there. But one of their biggest roles was taking care of the bride. Before the end of the week, when the wedding ceremony would take place, the bride stayed in a specific location. She stayed in a room. She was locked away during that time. And the friend of the groom was given the task of watching over her when it was time for the groom to come and get the bride for the wedding ceremony, the friend of the groom's job was done. He would recognize the voice of the groom when he came in the night to where the bride was to take her to the ceremony. He was the one who would recognize his voice. And then he would go away, This was tradition. He would go away from that place rejoicing for the bride and the groom. They took their role very seriously, and the friend of the the groom was, was never permitted to marry his friend's bride. Even if the wedding was called off, it was against the law for him then to marry the bride. It could not happen. His role was a very specific, very serious one. And John here saw himself as the friend of Jesus who was the bridegroom. He saw his role as the one who was watching out for the welfare of the bride. And he would never consider himself any sort of competition or distraction. His role was to watch over the bride and celebrate her union with the groom. So when he was asked about people going to Jesus to be baptized instead of him, he celebrated with Jesus. He could never be jealous. He could never be competitive. He was a friend of the groom. That's the picture that came to John's mind, and the one that he would respond to these questions with. Beautiful picture. It's one more part of this passage that I want to look at briefly, and it's verses thirty-one to thirty-six. In this section, John highlights five reasons to accept the testimony and authority of Jesus Christ. John's humility and his understanding of of his role in pointing people to Jesus just continues to shine here. First, John mentions in verse 31 that Jesus comes from above, from heaven. He was born of heaven. The rest of us have been born of earth. He speaks words from heaven. We speak words from an earthly perspective. He, Jesus, is above all, says John. Secondly, in verse 32, John states that Jesus knows the truth firsthand. He's not simply passing the truth along. He is the source of that truth. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We'll see that later in our study of John. There's no risk of the truth that he shares being tainted in any way. He is the truth, and he can be trusted. Thirdly, John points out that Jesus' testimony completely agrees with the Father. He is in absolute alignment with God, and therefore those who accept his testimony, like us, Declare that God is real and true as we align ourselves with him as well. Fourthly, in verse 34, John says that Jesus has received the Holy Spirit without measure. No human sinful limitations. Jesus is the fullness of the Spirit. So all that he says and does is fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. And fifthly, John states that God has given all things into Jesus' hands. He even has the power to give life all. All authority is his. John's very clear that Jesus is God and that we can fully trust his testimony, his works, his life, his ministry, his everything. John did, and so can we. The last thing that I want to talk about this morning is John's humility. In church, we can all learn from this. We can all learn from John the Baptist's humility. John's entire life was centered around making someone else look good. Constantly deflecting, constantly pointing to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus, not at himself. John understood who Jesus was and who he was in relation to Jesus. He got that straight. He saw it clearly. He didn't confuse that. He didn't confuse who he was at all. John was more than willing to just be in the background for Jesus. And he was happy with that. John wasn't concerned with how many followers he had. And so when this time comes up, when people are asking, what about all these people going over there to Jesus to be baptized by his disciples? Aren't you upset about this? You're losing these people. They're going to him, not to you. Remember Andrew? When Jesus calls Andrew, whose disciple was Andrew at the time? He was John's disciple. And John immediately gave Andrew that blessing. Go follow him. You're supposed to be following him. And he sends him off to follow Jesus. Just look at how John responds to the question, the concern about him losing his followers. There's no arrogance there. There's no threat there. There's no jealousy there. I got to tell you, as a pastor, face this all the time. All of us pastors do. There's that nagging little temptation, that little voice in our head going, you know, the church down the road is bigger than yours. And there's that temptation to slip into that. Why aren't more people following me? Church, I just want people to follow Jesus. And that's the model that John gives us here. It wasn't about who followed him. Paul spoke to this too. It's not about who followed Paul or or anybody else. He said it's about Jesus. And our role as pastors is to point people to Jesus. That's what I care about. That's what's important to me. But we face this temptation all the time. And so I have to ask myself, how central is Jesus to me? What does he mean to me? Where is he in my ministry? Is my ministry about drawing more followers? Should I be pulling all kinds of people from other churches to fill this room? No, I should be pointing people to Jesus. Am I fully committed to that? Am I fully committed to pointing people to Jesus? Are all of us, are all of us fully committed to that? Are we happy for Jesus when, when we're given the opportunity to point people to Him? Are we happy for the groom? Or are we sometimes afraid of what we'll lose if we try? When the people around us draw closer to Jesus, our brothers and sisters, when we see growth in someone's life, when we see them going through hardship, but they're drawn closer to Christ through that, are we happy for them? Do we celebrate that they're getting closer to the groom? Are we free of comparison or competition? When it comes to our faith and the faith of the people around us in God's family, are we so deeply committed to following Jesus that we see our role as making him look good all the time? Are we genuinely happy for Jesus? when he gets more followers. Will you celebrate right now to learn that there was somebody here last week who gave their life to Christ? So church, what can we learn from John? These are the words that I want us to take with us this morning. John said he must Increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Is that what you want to see happen in your life? Do you want to see Jesus increase? even if it means that you decrease, can you, do you want to align yourself with the humility of John the Baptist? And listen, Jesus said of John the Baptist that he was the greatest person to ever live. John says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. So where is that in your life right now? Is it Jesus and you? Or is it you and Jesus? He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus has to become my everything. And I am willing to become nothing for the sake of Jesus. Listen, church, I will remind you again that there's an enormous trade-off here. For all of eternity, for all of eternity, you get to spend in God's presence, face-to-face with God. God is going to give us a perfect earth, perfect bodies, and for all of eternity, He will come and dwell with us, and we will have an existence beyond anything we can imagine. It will be so glorious, it will blow our minds. And thankfully we'll have been given new minds so they won't explode in our heads when we get to see what God does for us. Are you willing to look at that and say, thank you God for that. Now this little thing here, it's yours. You increase, I'll decrease. I'm not going to put myself first and most important and central and make this earthly life all about me. Lord, you increase and I'll decrease. I know what's coming. I know what you have for me. So my life right now, right here, for this short period of time, will be all about Jesus. And I will be out of his spotlight, pointing people to that light, Letting them know that that's where their hope lies. I know, church, that none of us has perfected this. I will not say that every moment of every day, it's all Jesus and no Paul. But more and more, and now that now that we've looked at this passage, this is what I want, church. This is what I want for every one of us. That Jesus increases. And we decrease knowing full well that we will one day increase to a place that can't possibly be reached now. So let's give it all to him right now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and we're going to close our time with a few worship songs and it's very fitting because it's time for us church to just sing, to just declare that Jesus is the center that Jesus is the Son of God, that God is all who He says He is, that God is everything. It's time for us to declare in song even that He must increase, but we must decrease. Will you pray with me? And then let's worship together. Oh, Father, may may that be the desire of our hearts for the rest of our lives, that Jesus increases and we decrease. Father, will you forgive us for those times when when we think that you're not going to give us enough in this life? When we get frustrated with you because our lives aren't perfect and we think they should be, we, they, we think that we should have more, that things should be smoother and better, that we should have more joy, that we should have more wealth, that we should have more prosperity, that we should have more peace. God, forgive us for thinking that we should increase when our desire is not to see Jesus increase. God, teach us. Teach us through John. Help these words to stick with us and go with us from here. He must increase, but I must decrease. God, let that be the cry of our hearts. That Jesus is the center, that Jesus is the top, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords that Jesus is the groom and we are just friends of the groom. Show us the ways in which we are to point to Jesus. Lead us into that place where we celebrate every time somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, no matter what it might cost us. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your holiness, for your grace and mercy, for the deep, deep love that you have for us. Do what needs to be done in us to bring us to that place where we truly, honestly want to see Jesus increase in our lives and us decrease. Where we point and we praise and we declare Who Jesus is. Father, we love you and we come now to praise you for who you are, for who Jesus is, and for the incredible privilege we have of being friends of the groom. May Jesus increase and we decrease. And it's in His name, in the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.